Chapter 14, Cultivating an Inner Spiritual Life by Scott Brubaker's there. Early on in my pastoral ministry, I was preparing a young couple for marriage. I asked each of them to name something they appreciated about their relationship. The young woman gestured for her fiancé to go first, and I noticed a brief flicker of panic in his eyes. He thought for a moment and then blurted it out, Summer. Summer? I responded. Yeah, uh, summer, he repeated with nervous conviction. You can throw a couple of steaks on the barbecue and sit out on the back deck. Summer, that's what I appreciate. I probed a bit further as to what this might have to do with his relationship and quickly came to the conclusion that he was not trying to be a smartass. He was simply answering the question to the best of his ability. As this episode illustrates, it can often be difficult for men to express outwardly what they are feeling inwardly. For those in pastoral ministry, this can leave us with questions like, what is going on inside the hearts and souls of the men in my congregation? And in the interior lives of my male friends and colleagues, and inside me? These are all important questions, but they are not easy ones to answer. In this chapter, I make the case that, in order to grow in confidence and peace as members of society and disciples of Jesus, men need to find ways of attending to their inner lives in relation to God. I share results of a study on men's experience of God which raise further questions and point to ways of engaging men on their inner spiritual journey a journey that is inseparable from outward behavior. The Importance of Spiritual Experience Awareness of feelings, interpersonal dynamics, and interior states does not come easily for many of us men. But what about an awareness of God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit? As a Mennonite man and pastor, this has become a question of continuing interest to me. My interest in this question of men's experience of God is rooted as much in my own story as it is in my pastoral vocation. After returning home from working with the Mennonite Church in Columbia, South America, from 1990 to 1994, I was feeling a sense of spiritual emptiness. While living and ministering in a poor neighborhood of Bogota, I was overwhelmed with serious social problems and economic disparities. It became painfully clear to me that intellectual resources were not enough to sustain me in ministry. I needed a deeper grounding in faith and hope and so I began to search for a more personal experience of God. This search has been an ongoing journey that continues to the present day. In her book, A Mennonite Woman Exploring Spiritual Life and Identity, Don Ruth Nelson recalls a similar experience while working in Northern Ireland. 
She had studied at Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminaries, now Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary, in Elkhart, Indiana. At a time when the ethical, socio-political dimensions of the gospel had been emphasized over the personal and inner aspects. She recounts how the outerness of a purely political gospel wore thin as she encountered loneliness, the breakdown of relationships, and intractable social problems. She began to yearn for an inner life of prayer that could sustain her over the long haul. For Christian faith to be meaningful and vibrant, there needs to be some primary experience of God. By experience, I mean an awareness of God's presence or influence that we can personally appropriate and articulate in basic ways. The importance of a personal, experiential dimension is not a strange concept. Think for a moment about the work of business and sales. In order to be effective, the salesperson needs to have an experience of their product. Simply knowing the specifications is not enough. They have to be able to say how their product or service has affected their life and work. They need to have stories of what the product has meant to them personally. The personal dimension is particularly relevant for those of us in the Anabaptist Mennonite tradition. Our heritage of faith is an existential one, since it hinges on voluntary adult baptism. Prior to baptism and membership in the church, we look for a personal awareness of God that can be owned and shared with others. Our Anabaptist forebears spoke of an inward baptism of the Spirit, which comes before the outward baptism with water. In his book on Anabaptist spirituality, Arnold Schneider writes, Mystical and Anabaptist spirituality contrast dramatically with Reformation spirituality. The accent falls on the experienced presence of the living Christ within, transforming believers with power rather than on the historic work of Christ's atonement on the cross. While such statements may sound overly pious for many Mennonites today, Most of us would likely agree that Christian faith is meant to be more than just going to church and believing the correct doctrines. Faith in Christ needs to be experienced personally and fleshed out in our daily lives. Studying Men's Experience of God In a recent Doctor of Ministry project, I set out to investigate how men in Mennonite churches experience God by conducting individual in-depth interviews with men who were attending churches in the local area, in which I asked an open-ended question about their experience of God or their spirituality. In preparing for the research, I was often asked why I was focusing on men rather than interviewing women as well. One of the reasons I wanted to work with men was because men seemed to talk less about their spiritual experiences than women. As I've participated in spiritual retreats, workshops, and spiritual direction over the years, I've noticed that men are greatly outnumbered by women. This led me to ask why. 
Are men not having spiritual experiences that they want to explore? Are men not as spiritual as women? Or might they have different ways of describing and processing such experiences? The process. For my research, I invited men to confidential, hour-long interviews in which they responded to the question, How do you experience God within your congregational setting and beyond? I chose this open-ended question because I did not want to lead the interviewees into any particular response. I wanted to hear what they would say for themselves. The process was stopped when it became clear that the thematic categories were sufficiently saturated. In other words, when the same themes kept being repeated. I then proceeded to organize, analyze, and theorize about the responses, employing a qualitative research methodology called grounded theory. What I discovered. I discovered that the question, what is your experience of God, was not an easy one to answer. The men were somewhat puzzled and stymied, The question involves so much uncertainty and invites further questions. Who is God? How can we know that it is God we have experienced? The men talked most readily about their questions regarding God and their difficulties in understanding. To give an example, several men wondered how it was possible to talk about gratitude for God's blessings when so many innocent people were suffering in the war in Syria. In the post-research reflection meeting, the men all acknowledged that they don't usually talk about their spiritual experiences. This conversation was a new thing for them. Several said it was easier to talk about such things in a one-on-one setting than in a group. One said he'd had a few conversations like this with friends, but only after a few drinks. The whole topic felt strange and vulnerable to them. Even though it was a challenging question to answer, the men were very open to exploring and conversing. One said he found the interview experience to be cathartic. I was surprised that virtually all of the men randomly contacted were willing to be interviewed. My committee and I had assumed that it might be difficult to find willing volunteers, but this was not the case. The interviews showed that despite a difficulty in articulating their experience of God, the men shared stories of depth and were very sensitive to spiritual themes. Their responses were grouped into seven major categories. 1. Awareness of unmerited goodness. The men spoke most often about good things they had witnessed or experienced in their lives that did not seem connected with their own merit or abilities. They commented about goodness experienced in nature, in seemingly coincidental events, and in their work and family lives. They did not use theological language such as grace. In general, God was experienced in the mystery of blessings. 
The majority, however, were hesitant to name God as responsible for the goodness. Most of them referred to God as a mystery they could not describe or explain. Number two, awe. Awe refers to experiences of fascination. Most often, awe was experienced in relation to unmerited blessings, work or skills, witnessing the genuine goodness of others, or the beauty of nature. I found it interesting that none of the experiences of awe were connected to a sense of fear or dread. In the Bible, encounters with God are often accompanied with the assurance, Do not fear. Rudolf Otto describes religious experience as an encounter with the mysterium, tremendum, and fascinosum. He claims that encounters with the divine often provoke a sense of fear or dread. None of the men in this study reported this sort of experience. Number three, reverence. In response to unmerited beauty or goodness, many of the men expressed feelings and actions of reverence. One man sat down to take in the beauty of a vista while he was skiing. Another took time to kneel down with amazement, observing a small flower at his cottage. And you look at that flower and just a little bud on it, and you literally stand there and watch it. I even knelt down to watch it close for five minutes, ten minutes at the longest. That flower comes from a little bud, and you will see a complete and beautiful open flower. It opens up, unreal, one time. Number four, trust in a non-malicious universe. The men generally reflected on experiences of goodness by saying that there must be a benevolence to the universe. However, the majority of men were not ready to speak definitively about God's character or role in this benevolence. Many were troubled with the instances of suffering that they observe all around them. As one man reflected, I've gotten to the point in my life where I actually don't want to come up with a definitive experience of God. Or maybe that is the definitive experience, not wanting. Or having this experience that there is an underlying non-maliciousness to the universe and I almost hesitate to say goodness, because that implies, what do you do then with all the horrible suffering? The men wanted to account for all of the evidence before making a statement of faith. For the majority, trust in a non-malicious universe was as far as they could go. Number five. Sense of connection. The majority of men spoke repeatedly about the goodness of being connected to nature, family, meaningful work, and friendships. They also experienced a mysterious and benevolent connection between various events in their lives, such as meeting a spouse, being saved from an accident, or finding meaningful work. 
Some described a sense of someone looking out for them, or something holding everything together. When they talked about experience of God within their congregation, it was this sense of connection or community that was most important. Number six, ethical desire. In addition to feeling connected, the men also expressed a desire to connect, which demonstrated a consistent ethical impulse. While they did not say, I experience God through the ethical desire that God places within me, this desire came up so frequently that it can be interpreted as an integral part of their experience of God. The men showed a genuine desire to be good and to do good. One man shared, We recycle Kleenex boxes. I tear out the plastic liners, and the green bin thing is amazing. There was an article in the newspaper a while ago about people not using the green bin because it smells bad. And I'm thinking, you know, I just want to punch those people. Because, like, come on! Pull your head out of your posterior for a minute. Let's think about the long-term implications of this. Most often, the ethical impulse seems to grow out of a context of having experienced unmerited goodness. For example, a man experiences the wonder and beauty of the natural environment and then has a desire to care for the earth through recycling. Another man works to form caring relationships with his students because of the caring communal relationships he has enjoyed in his own life. In general, the men were uncertain about Christian doctrine, but clear on ethical values. When speaking about Jesus, they referred to him almost exclusively as an ethical role model. Number seven, awareness of need. The men did not talk much about their own brokenness or suffering. None of them spoke of sin in the traditional sense of the word, or of the need for forgiveness from God. In general, they talked more about their own vulnerability or the vulnerability of others. Summary In this particular Mennonite context, and based on these particular interviews, I would describe the men's spirituality as follows. It is tangible. When asked about their experience of God, these men reflected on concrete encounters with nature, events, and other people. They tended to respond to what they could observe, touch, and experience with their senses. It is external. The men did not describe an active inner life in relation to the question posed. It is a spirituality of gratitude for the everyday goodness that surrounds them. It is a spirituality of connection. The men perceive and value their connection to the earth and other people. They do not want to be isolated and alone. It is an ethical spirituality. The men believe that actions are more important than beliefs. It is a spirituality of intellectual caution and integrity. The men are hesitant to trust what they cannot see and understand. They value the scientific, evidence-based paradigm for understanding the world. 
They want to be able to explain what they believe in ways that will be respected by the broader culture. It was interesting to note the absence of biblical and theological language in the men's descriptions of their experiences of God. The men report experiencing God at church through music, singing, community support, honest sharing, and the open discussion of ideas. Sermons are less effective than discussions. There was little reference to the significance of communion and baptism. For the great majority of the men interviewed, the idea of a personal relationship with God was a strange concept. God was not experienced as a personal being or presence. They did not speak about being personally addressed, loved, forgiven, or saved. They did not speak about their own sin, problems, addictions, or weaknesses. If I were to summarize their spirituality, I would do so as follows. God may be real, but God is a mystery I cannot understand. I have received many undeserved good things in my life, and I would like to do my best to honor these gifts and be of service to others. Implications of the Study for Working with Men At the beginning of this chapter, I made the claim that primary experience of God is a necessary component of a vibrant Christian faith, especially an Anabaptist faith. The results of my study raises some questions about this claim. What exactly constitutes a primary experience of God? Are the men describing such experiences? What might their descriptions say to us as men and to those who seek to encourage men's spiritual growth in the Anabaptist tradition? David G. Benner presents a helpful model of spirituality in which he situates Christian spirituality within the larger realm of religious spirituality, which in turn is situated within the encompassing realm of natural spirituality. According to Benner, all people have a spirituality by virtue of being human. All humans have an innate desire for meaning, self-transcendence, and surrender. Religious and Christian spirituality emerge when these natural longings discover content and meaning within a particular religious tradition with its language, symbols, and rituals. The spirituality described by the men interviewed has more in common with Benner's definition of natural spirituality than it does with the religious or Christian spirituality. The men clearly display a sense of transcendence and a desire to surrender through ethical living, but they do not as clearly interpret this within the language of the church. The Work of Interpretation Traditional Christian language does not seem to be working for men like those I interviewed. I propose that if we wish to encourage such men in spiritual growth, we need to work intentionally at the interpretation of experiences of meaning. What does it mean in a Christian language to be overtaken by the beauty of nature? What does it mean theologically to sense and respond to an ethical impulse? As a pastor, I try to connect biblical and theological language with current realities in my sermons. 
I tried to make religious language accessible and understandable, but for whatever reason, this language of the church is not what these men are using to describe their experiences of God. Clearly, we need forums other than sermons and worship services to engage in this interpretive work. We need to find places in our churches where men can come together in less formal settings to share and interpret significant experiences. Inner Life Men do not have significant experiences of depth in their everyday lives. They are sensitive to questions of meaning and purpose. In order for these experiences to be integrated into a growing Christian faith, men need help in understanding and articulating these experiences through the lens of Christian language and spiritual tradition. For many men, this work will involve a growing awareness and articulation of an inner life. Experiences of depth touch our inner and subjective core. The language of the Bible is often connected to inner life. Jesus summons his followers personally. The Apostle Paul is forgiven, and Jesus asks him, Do you love me? John 21, 15-17 The rich young man is challenged. A man in need of healing confesses his sin the Bible at its heart is a story of people encountering God and being transformed from within. Encounters of depth, encounters with the mystery of God, are indeed present among men, yet they often go unnoticed, unarticulated, and uninterpreted. They lie there as buried treasure. The work is to help men dig down into their experiences of meaning and to interpret them spiritually in ways they can own and understand. Outer and Inner The journey for men will often move from the external, concrete events and issues, to the internal, feelings, intuitions, and vulnerabilities and then back again to external engagement with the issues of the world. In doing interpretive spiritual work with men, the goal is to stimulate awareness of the inner life, since this is the less developed function. However, it works best to start where men are. It works best to start on the surface and gradually peel back the layers. In spiritual retreat settings, I've noticed that men are often chided about being more focused on the external than the internal, as if this is a problem. Focusing on external observations is where many men feel most comfortable, and it is a perfectly fine place to begin in spiritual reflection groups, provided that the engagement does not remain there. The goal is to eventually move to issues of heart and soul. The challenge of men's work, as well as women's work, is to find a healthy integration between the outer and inner. The inner is not better than the outer. The goal of an integrated faith is having them work in balance. Anabaptist theology stresses a coherence between the inner and outer dimensions. We have always maintained that an inner faith without outward works is dead. 
we also know that Christ-like works without an inner faith are not possible. For believers to fully embody the ethic of nonviolent love, there needs to be personal access to an inner spiritual foundation. It is not possible to follow Christ without knowing him in one's heart. In conclusion, I offer four suggestions based on my study for working with men in the context of congregational or social life. Number one, create places to listen and reflect with other men. Before we can work on the interpretation of experience, experience needs to be shared and heard. For the majority of the men interviewed, it was a completely new experience to be asked to reflect on experiences of God. It felt strange and vulnerable. Nevertheless, all of the men were willing and interested. There is a hidden hunger for encounters and conversations of meaning among men. Men long to talk about more than sports and the weather, but are not sure how to initiate such conversations. We want these sorts of encounters, and yet we fear them. Churches can have an important role in creating spaces for these sort of conversations among men. There are several important things to keep in mind. First, the space has to be safe. For some men, this will mean a male-only gathering. While sadly having a history of dominating and excluding women, men are also intimidated by women. Oppression is often the result of fear and insecurity. Men are fearful of looking weak or foolish in mixed company. They are often less adept at naming feelings than women. They find it harder to cry and be vulnerable with one another. And so, in the early stages at least, it is a good idea to begin with male-only groups. Second, men benefit from space and distance in a group. A talking stick can be one way of providing this buffer. Third, it is helpful to make a ground rule of no advice or fixing. A common temptation for men is to try to solve problems. We must be trained to sit patiently and compassionately with unresolved issues. It is enough just to listen and hear one another. Men can learn to share more openly when there is space for unfinished reflections. It can be an experience of freedom and grace, an experience of God even. To be heard and accepted without having to look good or successful. One effective approach to personal sharing in a men's group is to invite reflection on a third thing. This allows for personal sharing in a more indirect way since the object of reflection is not the self or the presentation of another participant. Whatever the methodology, the goal is to get men together in a safe, non-judgmental environment to share and reflect on experiences of depth in their lives. I've included a few additional reflection questions for such groups in the footnote below. Number two, work toward the integration of spirituality, theology, science, and culture. 
It was clear from the men's comments that a critical evidence-based scientific worldview is a central part of their consciousness. A significant obstacle to experiences of God and reflections on those experiences has much to do with unresolved understandings of how God and the current scientific worldview can coexist. Most men in our local urban congregations share the current modernist or postmodernist paradigms. The work of integrating current paradigms with a spiritual theological worldview is a significant challenge. Unless we have been able to work at this deliberately, the Christian language can sound ancient and otherworldly. It appears that for many men, the language of the church is used only on Sundays and disconnected from daily life. In order to make sense of Christian language, we need to understand it within its social and cultural context and relate it to other language systems in which we live. There are ample resources for this sort of work and opportunities in sermons and the education hour, but it takes considerable effort. Lecture series, book groups, and open discussion forums can be more meaningful components of church life for many men than the typical worship service. Churches can be hesitant to wade into these discussions because they are fraught with challenge and controversy. Nevertheless, we avoid these conversations at our own peril. It may be that the church needs to adopt some new theological understandings and insights into the Christian spiritual path, but this should always be done with a deep understanding and respect for the language and tradition of the past. Number three, explore with one another the use of biblical and theological language. As men share their experiences with one another in groups, it is good for pastors or facilitators to ask the following questions. How might this relate to a biblical theme? Where is God in this? Might there be a theological way of reflecting on this? Such questions should be perceived as an invitation rather than a requirement. We grow in Christian spirituality as we begin to understand and interpret our current experiences in relation to the Christian, biblical, and theological tradition. The point is not to do it correctly or just as it has been done before, but to practice doing it presently and personally. Christian spirituality is not static. It continues to find new relationships with the language of the church, while also questioning and proposing new meanings and words. Number four. Move toward the disclosure of vulnerability and failure. In the interviews I conducted, the men did not speak much about their suffering, brokenness, or failure. This is not surprising, as such sharing often comes only after much time and trust. However, this is a place we men should move toward if we wish to grow spiritually. Christian spirituality is essentially about the mystery of death and resurrection. 
At its heart, the spiritual path of Jesus is learning how to deal redemptively with the suffering, sin, and pain of human life. Men, perhaps more than women, have been socialized to be providers and problem solvers. It is therefore difficult for many men to speak about their own personal weakness and failure. The natural inclination is to hide them and to try to look strong. Safe places of support are crucial for this sort of disclosure. If men can find ways of naming their failures in pain and compassionate company, there can be new possibilities for experiences of God, including healing, grace, and redemption.